And are, are you okay with the sound? Yeah, sure. It's so... good to have some ambient sound. Okay. So, hi everybody. It's Toby Miller here with the Cultural Studies Podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. And I'm in Cafe Kick in Exmouth Market. Um, English breakfast is great, thanks. Um, and I'm here with my new friend, and I'm going to ask her to pronounce her name after I try pronouncing it, because okay. I want to make sure that at least the listeners get the proper version. I'm going to say Anastasia Cavada, but I want yes. you to say it properly. Well, in Greek, it's yeah. Anastasia Cavada. Anastasia Cavada. Anastasia Cavada, but I do not expect people to have the Greek pronunciation, so Anastasia Cavada is fine, that's how I'm, I'm known here. But you would like to be called Anastasia. Anastasia. Anastasia, sorry, yes. so emphasis on the diphthong at the mm, end. Mm. Okay, well I will call you Anastasia then, yes, thank you. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, I say a new friend because we in fact met for the first time, I guess, a couple of weeks ago. Well, or, yes, yes, we have attended a conference together, we were at the ICA in Montreal, but we never spoke. I really, think, really chatting. So now we're chatting. Mm. And you're a, a professor at Westminster in yes. Communications, University of Westminster here in London, mm-hmm. but originally from Greece. I am, I'm from Athens, yes. And what are people in Greek, what are people from Athens called? Anastasia. Athene. Athene. Like we would say Athenian. Yeah, Athenian. Athenian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean Athenian. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. And you've you've been in Britain quite a long time because you've done at least a couple of degrees here as well as working here as an academic, right? It's, yeah, it's true. Well, I've been here for 11 and a half years. I came here, I think it was a week after 9-11. Wow. Um, So... All of the Greek students who came with me thought that there was going to be another attack in London because that was the next destination, so everybody was extra careful. Thank you very much. What is this? It's a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay, don't worry. Like I said, no one thinks it's a microphone. Everyone thinks it... When I'm taking it through security at airports or train stations, they think it's a bomb. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, very regularly. Just last week I was uh, <laughs> coming... It looks like one that opens up and says... Nah, nah. Well, well, like a grenade. Well put. Uh, when I was coming back through Paris last week, uh, oh, I was yeah. held up and I had to explain myself. However, oh, the Parisian uh, officials, unlike officials in all other countries, took my word for it. <laughs> in other countries, they want to unpack it and look at it. When the Parisian said, so what's this? I said... It's a microphone. I said, oh, fine. <laughs> but they didn't unpack it. They were just looking at an x-ray. So, so Anastasia, you were here in mid-September 2001, a number of other Greek students coming, and you were all yeah. a bit on the defensive about what you might find here, what you might encounter in terms it's of true. attacks. Yeah. Well, I wasn't as much, because people here were really calm about this whole thing, but everybody was saying, oh, there's going to be an attack in the subway, in the metro. Oh, oh, there was this other rumor that they were going to poison the water, so you would see all of the Greeks coming back from the supermarket with these huge packages of Evian water, because they were afraid to drink water from the top. So, are Greeks unusually cautious 
paranoid. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Insecure, neurotic and difficult. They are. They are. Okay, fine. Well, we've now summed up the national character pretty effectively. Because I have to say, when the terrible attack happened in 2005, mm. it was entirely predictable mm. that something like that would occur mm. as a consequence of Britain's role in the imperialist wars. In 2001, it would have been utterly maniacal to have suggested Britain would be a major target. It certainly yeah. became one yeah. within a few weeks, yeah, yeah, but yeah. not at that point. Mm. You know, it's through imperial folly, like the United States, That's that these true. things occur. That's true. We know. <laughs> That's true, but we Greeks, we knew. We knew. knew already. We knew already. You knew imperial folly was coming. Yeah, exactly. So in fact, your paranoid, neurotic, nutty predictions were entirely yeah. true, just slightly wrongly timed? Maybe, maybe. But you cannot be too cautious, according right. to Greek parents at least. <laughs> so your parents were saying, I want you to buy your own water. No, 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 not my parents. But, you know, you live in the halls of residence, there are a lot of Greeks living in the halls of residence, and seriously, you would see people with these <laughs> huge, huge packages <laughs> of bottled water. Hoarding. Hoarding, exactly, for the catastrophe. What's the Greek word for hoarding? Maybe there isn't one. Maybe it's such normal behaviour that it doesn't stand out. Not good at translating. Yeah, it's difficult when you're thinking all in English, isn't it? I do. I do. Yeah, think it's in difficult English then now. to go back. Yeah, 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 yeah. of course. So, um, I want to ask a much more in-depth and complex question. You're wearing the most fantastic brooch I've ever seen. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't even. I hesitate about even calling it a brooch. It's an old-fashioned volume That's adjusting true. device. That's true. A knob. Uh, it says volume, and then it has numbers yeah. one, and two. And it actually goes to eleven. It actually goes to eleven. That's true. That's true. And this is a reference to which film? A Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap. Yeah. Where their rock music had to be listened to so loud that the amplifiers had to go up. To had to go up to eleven. Exactly. So you could hear, what was it called, Big Bottomed Girls yeah. at maximum volume, is that what it was called? Yeah. Something like that. What a film it was. I guess the first really famous mockumentary. But tell me about the history of that brooch and your interest in volume at number 11. Well, that's actually a gift from my partner. Oh. So, who likes to buy this sort of like novelty <laughs> jewelry. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, that's a gift. It's lovely. But before I became an academic, yeah, I actually worked for the music industry for a little while. Is that why your partner chose that? Because of your interest in music? Not necessarily, but you know, I'm still an, an indie girl. I still <laughs> listen to indie music. I'm still, you know, you can see I'm wearing stripes. Indie you know? girls like volume. You do. <laughs> we do. So you worked in the music industry. What were you doing in those days? I was doing PR. I was doing public relations. Um, and I was working, well, it's the only job I did, actually, before I did my master's. It was for six months. And I was working for a concert promoter. Uh, they were organizing, you could say it's a Glastonbury of Greece. It's a, put modestly. Put, put modestly, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the three-day festival, four-day oh. festival now. It's called Rockwave, and they had other, you Rock know, Where is it held? festival. Um, at the time, it was held in Athens in a big uh, stadium, it was the only in the Olympic Stadium. Now it's held outside Athens. And in the last few years, they have acquired um, a big space outside Athens, and this is what they do it. Wow. 
But yeah, so this is, I used to work for them. I did PR, I did, I had all the contacts with journalists, and I, I also answered the phone, as you do in the small oh. companies, you do all, like all kinds of jobs. Yeah. So, this is, this is how, how I started. I have a BA in marketing and public relations. So you yeah. came over, you were weaned away from the dark side mm. to the light side. Mm. But there's still a part of you that loves PR. I understand PR, you could say. I understand the importance of, I don't know, I understand the importance of promoting something. Um, and I still find it much easier to promote something for somebody else rather than to do it for me. I'm extremely bad at self-promotion. That's interesting. Two comments. One would be to say, nowadays, there's a lot more promotion than ever before mm. by academics mm. of themselves and the things they believe in mm. and the entities that they associate with. But the second thing would be, why do you think you're better at doing it for others than yourself? Because you distance yourself from, from it. So it is easier to apply the techniques when you have a critical distance. I find it, I find it really hard to brag. I find it really hard. I find, well. First of all, I perceive it as bragging, which mm. tells you something, and then uh, probably this is why I find it pretty hard. I was reading a blog post, it must have been a few years back. I think it was from Clay Shirky, actually. And Clay Shirky was saying, uh, was talking about the differences in the CVs between female and male academics. Mm. And he was saying that, you know, consistently female academics did not promote themselves as much as male academics did, you know. So you would ask, uh, you know, sometimes you would ask somebody to write a reference letter from themselves, sort of like, you know, what, why should I hire you? And consistently women would underplay certainly. Maybe, so maybe it's a gender thing as well. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. So having said all of that, mm. this isn't just to promote you, but tell mm. us a bit about what you're working on, and I know just now you're mm. working very hard on teaching, just at the end mm. of the big teaching thing, mm. aren't you? Yes, I am, I am. Uh, the previous semester I was teaching, we have a really large undergraduate module, it's a compulsory one for, se for second-year students, um, and it's called Network Society and the Media. So it mainly deals with uh, new media, the sociological, the political aspects of new media, economic aspects as well, like business models. Um, so it's an interesting module, it sort of changes all the time. Sometimes it's hard to also convince students that it's interesting because they think they know everything about social media without being able to take a critical distance though, which might be a problem because they're so steeped into that culture that sometimes I find it hard um, to make them think critically about it. Really, That's interesting. The reason I, I find it so interesting is that in California, where I've been for the last eight, most of the last eight years, the teaching I've done has been often to tell students there's a thing called Twitter. Mm. No, for us it's not like that. I mean, they tweet during class, so we had to incorporate Twitter as part of the teaching strategy. So it's not, it's not like that at all. Um, you have a new generation of very media savvy people. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they understand how the media work. They know how to use them, they know how to promote themselves on them really well. But I don't think they necessarily understand the mechanisms and the structures that underlie this media. So what would be an example, not of a student, but of an instance where understanding underlying structures 
is valuable for comprehending how a particular medium or company works? Um, um, to give you the best example, I think, is there's a lack of understanding about issues of privacy. Uh, so, I, you know, I do a lecture on privacy and identity and I, and I ask them, you know, I have a class of 100 people and I ask them, so how many of you have actually read the terms and conditions of Facebook in, its, in their entirety? And I regularly get like one or two people who have done that. Do you want Emiliano to make your coffee? So, I mean, I, I don't think that you can know how to use these because they will be using them professionally. But then there are all these questions around your private data, what happens to them, whether, you know, who has the copyright of all this material that you are producing online, whether this is a form of labor that you are, you know, signing away. Yeah, and who. So there are all these questions that I think. I think they know they exist, but they prefer to brush them aside because they're just too difficult to deal with and be resolved. So, you know, there are all these discussions in the center, oh my god, privacy, whatever. But then in the end, they're like, okay, I'm not going to leave Facebook, so I might as well accept it. What can we do? They have fewer things to be private about in some ways. They've gone through the adolescent issue of wanting to keep their feelings private from their parents. But they have few things to keep private in terms of the amount of criminality they've engaged in, mm. the failed relationships they've had, mm. the investments that they've made monetarily than older people do, mm. who often, in my experience, have much more heightened views of privacy, frequently out of the fear of the state, mm. uh, insufficiently frequently out of the fear of corporations and corporate bureaucracies. Mm. But that is an interesting one. So getting them to think about privacy and about labor, yes, yeah. and how their ideas, their creations, their mm. thoughts, in fact, can then become sold items, commodities, without their knowing it or being remunerated for it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I mean, they're even, sometimes they don't know, they don't know about creative commons, for example, uh -huh. which, which I think, you know, if you are a creator, because most of them are doing television production, radio production, they're journalists, which means that they, they publish information or content online. And you're thinking, you don't know creative commons, you don't know how to protect your material when you're sort of like uploading it and are you giving it for free did you yeah so there are all these issues i think you know they come to class thinking that they know everything maybe they leave class thinking that they know everything it's sometimes a bit difficult to get them to think critically about all this because they have accepted it as they have accepted it as a given without really understanding that all of those changes have certain mechanisms, that things could have gone a completely different way when the internet first appeared. That there's nothing deterministic about the way in which we're using the internet at the moment, you know? But I think it's, for a younger generation who grew up with those technologies, it's much more difficult it's to... Different. Can I ask you about those technologies in Greece? I'd like to know, to the extent that you stay in touch, whether they're being used increasingly in English, or at least in that alphabet, or whether the Greek alphabet has a major presence on the internet and is preferred by readers. Well, when we first started using um, email and all that, um, we were writing in Greenglish. 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 Um, 
So yeah, effectively, <laughs> you use English characters like the Latin characters to write them you know, with the Greek words. Um, we still do it. I'm texting as well. For me, it's always in English. Um, now people, yeah, have switched to Greek, you know, for their email communication, for texting. Because for transliteration that. is easier. Yeah, to yeah, do. it's much easier. But because it's built into that. But most Greeks have a, a good level of understanding of English and all that. So, you know, is Greek I think it's not a bit of a problem. A situation where the words are actually all Greek, but the script is Latin. Yeah. It's not a yeah. mixture of Greek and English words. Well, if you've lived in England long enough, it becomes that. <laughs> but no, no, it is supposed to be. It's just, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a use of different characters. I mean, our alphabet is not very similar to the Latin yeah. alphabet, so it's not, it's not a big problem, you know. Um, no, it's not like Hebrew or Potomac yeah. or... Korea. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's easy to do. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I wonder if we could talk a wee bit about your research now. Uh, mm. <laughs> mm, she said. Yeah. Tell me what interests you right now, even if it's not necessarily what you're working on. What, what's going on inside that Anastasia mind? It's pricking your fancy. Okay, I mean, since we talk... Okay, since we talked about... Um, my background in PR and marketing. I have to say that while I was studying PR and marketing in Greece, I was also an activist. So I was, I was one of the few activists who was willing to do fundraising because I understood the importance of fundraising. So I was always the one asking people money, including the then Prime Minister. I asked him for money for Greenpeace. Papandreou? Pap, uh, no, it was Sumitis at the time. And he didn't give me that much money, which affected my opinion of him. But anyway, so... Um, so I was a member of Greenpeace, I was an activist for them for a couple of years and then I was an activist and a member of Amnesty International Just in, down the street? In well, it was back in Greece, yeah, right, it's now down the street now, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, the international secretary, yeah. Um, so I was, I was always interested in, in yeah. sort of activism. Um, and it was actually through Greenpeace that I started to become much more interested in the media because Greenpeace, um, you know, you have a really small core group of people who can actually promote something really well, and the, you know, the action is, is part of that. Um, so it was, it was, it was fascinating. Um, the whole, you know, representation of Greenpeace in the media, how our actions, you know, were portrayed, etc., etc. So when I came here to do my masters, I did the masters in communication. I thought I was either at Westminster. At Westminster. Right. I was thinking I was either going to work for an NGO or work for Glastonbury. So get a promotion from uh, <laughs> the Greek from version, the, the Greek Athenian version, version to the real version. So more mud, less more sun. More mud, less more sun. More mud, less sun. Yeah. Maybe more money. Yeah, maybe exactly. less fun. Maybe less fun. Well, more professional. Even. That was yeah. the idea. That was the idea. Um, but I really like the theory bit of the Oh, green. you theory head you. I Look loved at you it. Now. I loved it. With and your volume control. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so I really love, for example, theories of communication, which is actually a module I'm leading on the Masters now. It's really funny uh -huh. because I've oh, done you, it as a student. You took it. And now I am teaching it. Who taught it when you were studying it? It was Paddy Scanlon. Paddy Scanlon. And yes. what did you learn and what do, what do people today learn in that module? 
It's the same, more or less it's the same, because we are actually using Patti Scanlon's book on Indian communication a lot. But we've added a few things that he didn't talk about that much. Um, we, we added a lecture on political economy of the media and on propaganda. So it starts, I mean we started, it's historical, and we talk about the Columbia School and we talk about uh, cultural studies here in the UK and we talk about you know all these all these issues how it developed the study of the media yeah so it was really it was a lot of fun thinking about those issues theoretically so I thought mm, you know um, so my dissertation was on the internet and on how political parties here in the UK the three major ones and three NGOs used the internet to promote um, their activities that was back in 2002 and then I thought, okay, I want to do a PhD, they gave me a scholarship to do it. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'd like to pick a political organization or a political group or something that seems to be using the internet in a, in a more innovative way. Yeah. So at the time, um, the global justice movement, or as it is more widely known, anti-globalization movement, even though that's not the wrong term, that's not the right term. Yeah, they're definitely very globalized. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they were using the internet and all that. I mean, it was it was very much in you know it was very active, it was very present, and so there were all all those claims that it has certain characteristics as a movement, and partly that was because it was using the internet so much in order to organize. So people were saying, oh, you know, you see a movement that is very decentralized, like it's very networked. And it's because it's using the web, which is also a network. So there were all these claims that the characteristics of the technology were mirrored in the characteristics of the movement, yes. which I found really interesting, possibly wrong, but also quite interesting as a claim. And I'm, I'm saying all that because I think that this core concern has not gone away. Yes. I, I am extremely, extremely interested in political organizing and the way people organize and spread ideas and how then this is related with the media that they're using. Now, within political science and within sociology, you know, when people study social movements um, in relation to the media, in connection with the media, they always, uh, there's, there's much more emphasis on representation. So we're interested in how, you know, political groups are represented in the media whether the, the portrayal is correct, etc., etc., etc. So there is this emphasis on representation and mediation. Uh, I'm not saying that this is not very important. It is extremely important. Um, but I'm more interested in also processes of internal communication. I'm interested in unpacking how the way in which we communicate affects the way in which we organize, affect, affects the organizational structure affects our decision-making processes, hence, you know, the democratic systems that we apply when we make decisions, um, and also affects our ideology to an extent, affects what we our values. Um, so that has been a core concern. It was a core concern during my PhD when I did my PhD. I focused much more on the European aspect of the global uh, justice movement, the European Social Forum, 
and I looked at how they organized using email lists and websites, but particularly email lists because it was email that was used internally in the movement. So I looked a lot at internal communication, not mm. really external mm -hmm. communication. Um, so I have a few papers in how, for example, email lists helped the movement to be more decentralized, but then it, the movement was also becoming more centralized during the face-to-face -face meetings. So that's another core concern. It's not, you focus on one medium, you may be focusing on you know, what's going on online, but in order yeah. to understand that, you need to understand how it fits within a broader communication ecology sure. of a movement. So for example, you would find um, you know, decision-making for mm -hmm. everybody who's been in a consensus-based uh, participatory democracy time, time meeting. Yes, uh, Francesca Poletta, you know this book, uh, Freedom is an Endless Meeting. No, I don't uh, It's know. an amazing book. It's a, it's a book on um, American social movements and their experiments with participatory democracy. And it's a historical one. It goes from civil rights movement up to uh, direct action movements. Anyway, uh, so it's called Freedom is an Endless Meeting. And it's supposed to be like that, you know? So you would be in the meetings and, and you would see the dynamics of power happening over there. Um, and you could see how leadership was actually emerging from the meetings. You could also see how the leaders were actually the people who could take part um, in the decisions face to face. Uh, but it was also for other reasons, because face to face it was easier to get to know each other, more also personally, to build relationships of trust, etc. etc. And that had a more centralizing effect, I would say. Uh, but then the movement would disperse again. And it would be online in myriad email lists. So I find those dynamics really interesting. Centralizing offline, decentralizing online. And I think it still, it still occurs with movements at the moment. It does, hasn't really stopped, I would say. So it continues to be a core concern, but I find that it's because it's not studied as much, um, there's not, there aren't many theoretical frameworks that you can use to understand that. Yeah. I find that um, communication has always been, well, I think communication is, is under-theorized. That's my, my claim. <laughs> it's like we know how organizations communicate, we do not know how communication builds organizations. It's, um, we have fewer theories to explain that. Um, so I studied reading, you know, I'm reading stuff on self-organization and all these, you know, books around how this happens. I'm reading books from organizational communication. There's particularly a strand that looks at how communication constitutes organization. Um, because I'm, I'm trying to, to understand, okay, what are the mechanisms? Because those claims persist. I mean, with all those revolutions now, the Arab Spring, they were saying, oh, it's a Facebook revolution, it's a Twitter revolution. And it means that because it's using Twitter, they were using Twitter, again, they were more decentralized, they were more dispersed, there wasn't necessarily a central leadership, um, you know, within the mobilizations, etc., etc. So they are persistent, all of those um, claims. 
But I, st I still think that we haven't really found a way, a framework, something to try to explain how does this happen, you know? And I think it happens, you know, it arises as a structure from really everyday routine things. I trust you more if I've met you face to face. Immediately this creates a structure. Or, you know, we have a meeting, a core group of people, and then we decide to set up an email list. And we say, oh, okay, who, who would like to actually set up the email list? And you say, yeah, I'd like to set up the email list. And then suddenly you become the spokesperson for the email list because you're the one who set it up. And then suddenly you're the one who actually has access to 100 emails, which gives you power. It's the same with Facebook, if you set up a Facebook page and you're the administrator. And suddenly you have like structure being built that is related to communication. And I guess a lot of this takes place in communication studies in the appallingly named OrgCom. Yeah, yeah. As part of network analysis, people like yeah. Nosh Contractor yes. and Peter yes. Monji yes. looking at how people know one another, yeah. uh, what their outside connections yeah. are, how yeah. they communicate, and then drawing these diagrams that people are very keen yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Allegedly yeah. explain things. Right? Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. But it's a bit dry. I mean, it is a method, but it's a bit of a dry method, I find. Uh -huh. Because it's as if you suck the politics out of it. You draw the politics out of it, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what would you do instead? Or would you find that method helpful, but it needs politics yeah. added? Yeah, exactly. Put back in. Exactly. How do you do that? OK, I'm not a person, a political person with a capital P. Which You're not, sorry? A, a political person with a capital P. I am, and I'm not. I mean, I believe I believe that the process with which you're organizing something says a, says a lot about you, what your political project is about. And Democracy begins here, as it were. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, so the movements that, that I've, I've studied, and also that I think that this is a feature from movements like Occupy at the moment, believe that the process of decision making was actually the process of decision making was actually part of the ideology, because what yes. they were trying, because the the decision making process was embodying a critique, to, it was an embodied critique to the system in in some respects. So they were saying, well, representative democracy is in crisis, politicians are corrupt, you know, there is a crisis of governance on the global level, and here's one way to solve it. It's a Hegelian refusal in a, the name yeah. of populism. Yeah. So they were saying, you know, this is how we will try to organize, you know, consensus, participatory democracy, open assemblies. Of course, we all know that these have other problems, doesn't mean that, you know, you're trying to have equality doesn't mean that this happens necessarily. You have other dynamics of power happening, but uh, there was a belief that the you know the process of organising was very important. It was ideological in itself, um, and I, I still carry that idea. Um, I still think that. I mean, we are in the midst of a great economic crisis. Okay, and. I think part of the problem is that what you would call the left has not really offered some more imaginative solutions 
imaginative alternatives to the market system. If you look at the alternatives, essentially they're saying going back to the state, state control. And I found there is sort of like a lack of imagination there about what could happen. Well, I think also people feel very lacking in confidence economically. They end up supporting a Keynesian initiative versus, uh, if you like, a monetarist one. Yeah. And they don't have an answer in terms of how to reorganize the economy, uh, nor do they necessarily have a way of theorizing the economy in the context of direct versus representative democracy, which obviously, I guess, every Greek grows up with a special investment in, <laughs> yeah, in terms true. of one's heritage and how that heritage is mythified and rarefied around that's the world. True. That's yeah? true. That's true. But I think it goes beyond that. It's. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that you should you should not have a market or you should not have a state. I'm not one of those people who just, you know, has a vision of a completely different system. I'm just saying that there are other systems of exchange and other systems of organisation um, that you can more easily, more network, more decentralised, more flexible, more fluid systems. Um, and what I find quite compelling is the idea of the commons, which is not necessarily state, public, you know, in that respect, but it is not a market. It is how you do and how you organize things in common, which I think, and I will sound really techno-deterministic now, but I think we do have the technologies in place to be able to organize something like that, you know, more practically, more easily. Um, so I think there is a lack of imagination there. So if you, if you, so there is, I mean, democracy is a way of taking decisions and organizing. So this is about drawing lines <laughs> that are not determined by property or by state power. Yeah, it's it's deciding about common goods. Which are the common goods that you would like to produce? Yes. Um, like participatory budgeting yeah, of a kind exactly. that was important exactly. in uh, progressive leftist movements in exactly. local governments in exactly. India and Brazil. Exactly. I think it's sort of like if you wanted to give it a name, maybe you could call it more anarcho-communist or anarcho-singalist. It's just it it combines community with some libertarian ideas, but then you would have to think beyond that. Think of okay, how do different communities also coordinate. So it's not a fragmented system. I mean, I, I, I think that's the biggest challenge that we have at the moment. So if you were to innovate yourself out of the crisis, but truly innovate, how would you do it? Would you go back to nationalization? Would you go back to a big state? Now I come from Greece. I mean, maybe in the UK you would think that a bigger state, you know, because the state is now so much under attack. And, and there, you know, I'm against a lot of the, you know, conservative politics at the moment, policies. But in Greece, the state is different. So I wouldn't go back to a big state in Greece because it's hugely inefficient. And corrupt. And corrupt, yeah. So what do you do? How do you... I mean, it's, it's quite interesting what's going on in Greece. There is this very, very bleak um, view. There is this so much sort of like negative 
negative news about Greece also, you know, it's, it's, it's like such, you know, so depressing and the people are depressed. But on the other hand, you see some innovation and creativity happening at the margins. People setting up their own collectives and cooperatives and their own sort of like solidarity economy systems and time banks and... Same thing in Spain. Yeah. And I imagine Portugal and Ireland. But yeah. yeah, big time. Of course, there yeah. are very interesting responses to what happens when you do have negative yeah. growth in yeah. an advanced capitalist economy. Yeah. And you also find that coordinating those projects. I mean, they use the internet a lot to, to coordinate those projects mm, mm. because because I guess it is easier. Mm. You know, I was thinking, you know. There are other ways. There's crowdfunding that you can organise now more easily online. There, are, you know, there are other things that you can. Like rent parties in London in the 1980s, when people would hold parties to try to meet the rent, and yeah. you'd throw yeah. money in. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's exactly to support the same. people yeah. while having a fun yeah. time somewhere. But you know, for example. Uh, I can't really buy a house here. I don't. I don't have the money for a deposit to buy a house necessarily here. You could sell your brooch. I could sell my brooch. But your partner which, which is be now very... becoming extremely famous. I think it is. <laughs> but your partner might be a little unhappy at the sale of the brooch. Really would it be sold at point nine or point eleven? Something. In, what it would, the would have to be? have eleven. It would, would have, have to be have at eleven. Yeah. Be an yeah, indie of brooch course, sale. Of course. Yeah. Of course. But in all seriousness, you can't afford to buy a place here. Yes, that's the first thing. And the second thing, I, I would like to do it as a group. So we've been toying with the idea with a few friends of mine, you know, setting up like something like a cooperative. How would you do it? And of course, we don't even have the money for a cooperative, but I would find it so much more fun to buy a building and renovate it with friends of mine and, and have sort of some common spaces and for that building to also have a community value, you know, a community function as well and for us to pull together resources, you know, whatever resources those are, childcare and I mean it just, it just makes so much more sense. If you, if you think about it. So if, if you are... I know that's not something new, but if you think about it, why, are not, why aren't more people doing it? Well, obviously, the ideology of home ownership is a real problem. Yeah. And also, you've got situations where it's hard to borrow money, yeah. where it's hard... You know, one level, you could say, you're spreading the risk across a number of people, but for a bank, it doesn't look that way. Yeah. It looks like you're spreading the risk across a number of unreliable people whose network yeah. itself may easily crumble yeah. to pieces. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they like things like home ownership associations, but they don't like communal loans so much. They want a developer yeah. to take out the loan and then yeah. essentially sell the loan off to mortgagees, exactly. right? Exactly. exactly. Which spreads the risk across single income streams or dual income streams but are connected through things like marriage you know that this is how these places operate you know they have extremely reactionary norms built into their actuarial tables exactly because you know what is risky and what is not risky as we have recently discovered was not really calculated that rigorously oh, you remember these are the smartest people in the room Anastasia yeah. they are 
beyond our ken. In any event, could I take you back a little bit to something you said earlier when you mentioned that you'd uh, written a few papers based on your dissertation, and I wondered if you could tell people where they might find some of this material that is precisely about organisational networks and communication and so on. Um, I've written, yeah, I've written a, a, a few papers on it. Um, there's a paper on decision making which was published in uh, Media Culture and Society, and it's about decision making online and offline, and all the practices uh, involved in that movement. Um, there is another one that deals mostly with collective identity um, and how movements like that build a sense of collective identity because that's the other, this was an, another issue for the global justice movement. So you have this very networked movements, which means that the sense of the collective is extremely loose. Um, and also, at least in theory, but I think it's pretty much true. In my generation of people, there was um, a rejection of the big ideologies. There was a rejection of those forms of solidarity. So it was always a challenge about how you create a movement that leaves space for autonomy, leaves space for individual identity, but at the same time builds a sense of the collective. So how do you remain connected? but in a loose manner. Um, so Donatella de la Porta calls it unity in diversity. So how do you build that? So I have a paper around that showing how the internet helps to re maintain those loose connections. You know, allow some space for individuality. And then you have a balancing act again with the face-to-face -face meetings and demonstrations where you feel part of the crowd. And this can be extremely nice for somebody, but then you're also happy to go back, you know, to being a more of an individual online, being able to voice your opinions, being able to disperse, being able to not be a member anymore. Because what the internet also makes it makes it much more, much more easier to join a movement, but then also leave a movement very, very easily. So it allows you some individual control over your commitment and your involvement. Clickocracy. Yes. Yes, I mean, we tend to be extremely critical of all this, um, but I think it's, it is also a reflection, I, I don't think it's the internet, uh, the internet may be facilitating that, but I think um, it is a reflection of people's values and people's, you know, solidarity. I was reading in The Guardian yesterday, um, there was this, you know, this survey of, you know, younger generations of people which shows that they have, you know, they do not believe in the welfare state as much, and this, you know, this belief, like, progressively gets... You have a mid-generation that has grown up, and it's even more so now you could say. So how do you engage people who be belong in this media generation? It is a different narrative that they are involved in. They have to feel, we have to feel that we are more in control, uh, that we are not lost in the crowd. But on the other hand, there is a yearning for community and connection. So I have another... The dilemma of the bourgeois individual. Yeah. So this yeah. paper is available... It's available in Information, Communication and Society. Information, Communication and Society. Yeah, and there is another journal, the Journal of ePolitics, 
No, the International Journal of, Inter of E-Politics, I think. I thought you were about to say the International Journal of Ignorance. I think we may have the name of a new new title, IG. Maybe. IJI. <laughs> anyway, sorry. International yeah. Journal of E-Politics. Yes. So, I've, yes, I've had, I have a few articles out and a few book chapters that are based on my PhD. Quite a few, actually. Wow. I should have written a book, I think, because it would have been much more, e much easier to have them like consolidated all uh, consolidated. Yes, in one narrative. Well, can you remember the names of any of the, the books, maybe, in which your chapters appear, just to help people, you know, scurry along and unlock yeah. your secrets. Well, um, they're always available upon request, then you can find the full publication list on my profile at the University of Westminster, oh, yes. so if you search for me. Um, and there are a few books which are also available online, you know, for free. Oh, great. And what I'm also trying to do is sort of like release at least the draft versions of those chapters, you know, also on Academia I do and, you know, and other places and like other those. Places yeah, like great, those great. And a lot of them. So that was the work from the PhD. After the PhD, I found... I focused a little bit more on NGOs because I, I went back to NGOs to, yeah, to non-governmental organizations a little bit more. I think it's because social movements are very, very difficult to deal with in some respects. They're extremely, they're quite chaotic and fluid and changing and the internet is always a bit chaotic and fluid. As Henry Kissinger used to say about Europe, who do you yeah. call? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a... It, so I think I, I wanted something that was a little bit more, a little bit easier to deal with, you know. Bureaucratized. A, yeah, a little bit more bureaucratized, yes. Mm -hmm. So I've done some work on uh, Amnesty International on 38 Degrees, which I haven't written up yet. That's a paper in, well, I have, but it's in draft form. Oh, and does that draw on your experiences? No, not so oh. much. Because a lot of things have changed. When yeah. I was an activist, we weren't using the internet as much. Uh, we weren't, really. It was early days, it was in Greece. There wasn't, you know, even getting people to donate online was like really difficult. Right. So a lot of things have changed. So I've looked at Amnesty International in the UK. I've looked at 38 degrees. I have a paper which was published, which is on Avaz, um, and it's their use of social media. So there I'm trying to deal a little bit with these ideas around clicktivism and slacktivism and see what sort of community, sense of solidarity people are developing online. But also um, I'm interested in the organizational structure, how people are involved in the activities of the organization, whether they're given autonomy yeah. on social media or whether they are incorporated much more in, uh, you know, in the organization and they're given less initiative, less scope for you know, taking initiatives. Um, so it's very much along the same lines of my thinking. Now, um, I'm cooperating with someone from uh, Belgium and we ran a survey with Greenpeace members. With what, sorry? With uh, Greenpeace members. Greenpeace members. Um, trying to see 
exactly examining this question of clicktivism, trying to see their sense of empowerment through social media and connection with Greenpeace. Because, I mean, in all of those debates around clicktivism, people are making assumptions without actually asking the users what they feel. And I find that there's, there's you know, so much sort of like negative criticism about those practices and what they can do, which, you know, I think is understandable up to a point. But I think you actually need user research in order to be able to back up mm -hmm. these, these, claims. Uh, these claims. In the United States, congressional offices are obsessed with written letters, particularly handwritten letters, mm -hmm. which they place greater faith in than anything yeah. that comes to them electronically, yeah. even that's printed and signed. They like something that is handwritten because many, many members of Congress still regard this as an authentic, organic, sort of the earth form of communication that is profound. And that's changing as you get more people involved in Congress, familiar with these things in a different way, but they're still obsessed with, does this really come from someone who is enrolled in my state, mm. in my constituency, and lives there and can vote for me and is not a student, right? There's, because there's such mobility in the US population. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the factors, but also the notion that well, it took more effort to write this rather than put your name on a petition. So I think in, in the case of the United States, it's very interesting to see how this does and doesn't communicate itself through capital P politics. But of course, it's, it's another story again in terms of what internet participation can mean for the confidence of a movement, for the sense that the, the activists in it are not alone, uh, for fundraising, all kinds of elements, right? Where it's easy to be skeptical like congressional officers tend to be, but quite unwise, I think, in terms of these objectifiable forms of commitment that are just as material and significant in their own way as putting pen to paper. They are, and, and I think, and I think when, when you're trying to study uh, political participation, you also have to see what it means for the specific individual. Maybe for you and I, we've been politically active, signing a petition is nothing for us. But it might mean a lot to somebody who hasn't been involved. Ever done it before, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so I, I think that the, you know, sometimes there is this, we want people to get involved, we want the internet to facilitate that involvement, but we want them to be involved in a very specific way that fits our own values and our own, you know, sense of what, you know, what is good participation and what is bad participation. Um, and, I, and a lot of that critique comes, I think, from that, instead of actually trying to understand what it means for the people who are participating. Yes. Yes, sure. So that, I, I find that a bit of a problem. But you're right. Uh, politicians here, it's the same thing. They do not really pay that much attention to online petitions in particular. Oh, the same in Britain, yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. Mm, you know, you get sort of politicians in Parliament talking about zombies, that people are like zombies clicking uh, yes, yes, yes to petitions and not really respecting them. Um, which is why I was so interested in organizations like 38 Degrees and Avaz, because the way they started was mainly based on petitions. It is a form of campaigning. 
Het is very much. That I don't think could exist without the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you get a core of campaigners, and they focus on topics that are um, that have attracted public attention already, which means that you do not have to spend um, a lot of resources to actually attract attention to specific issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you set up a petition. Uh, people sign it, it's very easy for them to do, and at the same time what you do, you build an email database. Because when people sign petitions with their email address, you're, you know, you have a like, huge, huge database of people. And then what you do, uh, you have all these techniques of uh, marketing. So this is where perhaps my background comes in. What was referred to rather crudely earlier yeah. as your dark past. Yeah, but it wasn't a dark past, I mean, no. Of course. <laughs> um, yeah, so you have all these then, you know, techniques take, taken from marketing. So people are, you know, they are thinking, oh, okay, how can we use this email database? Mm. So they may be sort of like running surveys to see what it is that, you know, concerns people. But also they may be building petitions on, you know, different issues and then they test them on a random sample of the database. And then they sort of like launch them to the whole database if they, they are popular. So in a way they are trying to represent the people that have signed on. What about the plutocratic aspect of this? Because frequently, in my experience, non-government organizations that do this are especially interested in their major donors, the people who provide the money that enables them to lobby, to hire, and so on. And so, yes, they're interested in what the general membership and clickocrats have to say, but they also want to make sure that they're in some sense satisfying their donor base by addressing topics that the people who put in the money think are important. That was actually the reason I left Greenpeace and went to Amnesty International as an activist. Uh, As an activist, um, when I was in Greenpeace Greece, um, two years in, the strategy shifted a bit more, the fundraising strategy shifted a bit more towards uh, high donors. Because uh, Greenpeace Greece was set up in the early 90s. There was an, in- an initial sort of enthusiasm about Greenpeace, so a lot of people were giving money. But at the time when I was an actress, I started to mature, so enthusiasm started to go down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so entering into this mature phase also meant um, a revision of. of, of of the strategy, of the fundraising strategy. Middle-aged bureaucratization. It was, yeah, a little, well, it was still a very small organization. And now looking back, I understand them much more. (laughs) But I was, you know, I was 19 at the time, 20, and I wasn't willing to get arrested if for, for an organization that has shifted the strategy towards high donors. I wasn't, you know, because as a Greenpeace activist, you, you know, you, you are, should be willing to break the law. And that's a high threshold of involvement. <laughs> so, I, 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 yeah, I just didn't feel that I want to continue. Sure. Um, but it's understandable. Um, what I find really interesting, and again, coming back to this issue of crowdfunding, 
is that maybe the internet can sort of help us with that because it is much easier to aggregate smaller contributions of people because you know before it was it was much more it was much easier to handle the big donations rather than get people donating sort of like 10 pounds every you know every year or whatever now you have much much better flexibility when it comes to fundraising so I think the internet might help with that actually it might help to uh, return to the grassroots to grassroots fundraising I'm hoping it will apparently in the Obama campaign it helped 2008 the innovative Obama campaign not 2012 yeah not necessarily well you could say that Obama was much more of a grassroots movement in 2008, in some respects. Well, they accepted uh, yeah. gigantic donations. They did, they did. In the latter case. And for an election they were never going to lose, I know that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, you know, this will be addressed. But it's always, it's always a problem. It's always a problem with NGOs, a problem of accountability, of who they are representing, what sort of interests are there. Um, so yeah, I find it really, I find it really interesting. And you see organizations like 38 Degrees or Avas trying to address exactly that critique because they understand that, you know. So hence the surveys of the database. They're like, oh, you know, we're trying to decide where we, where, where we'd like to focus on, what would you like to do, and then. You know, you ask them the question there and then they come back to you and they say, well, you know, most of you decided that this is what you'd like to focus on, this is what you'd like to do, etc., etc. So it's another form, I guess, of representation. Sure. Well, Anastasia, thank you very, very much for joining us. Yeah. And I'd like to extract a promise from you, if I can, that you'll come back into the pod, charging back into the pod, yes. for us to talk some more about your work in the future. Yes, I'd love to. I'd love to. Thank Great. you.